Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dr. Odell Glenn of the OG Inspiration Show, empowering you this week for the purpose of my show is to inspire, motivate, empower, enrich the lives of others through education, career planning, my own experiences, nonprofit organizations, authors, faith-based communities, coaches, entrepreneurs, professionals, and small business owners. The purpose of life is to live it, to taste experience, to turn obstacles into opportunity to the utmost and to reach out eagerly and without fear for newer and richer experiences. We have an innovative God and he is constantly challenging us to reflect his glory, to utilize the characteristics he has given each of us to move forward towards righteousness. And we must often be innovative in that task. And so ladies and gentlemen, today I'm gonna dedicate some quotes to foster kids, foster parents. These are our unsung heroes who help to care for precious children in need of a loving home, as well as step parents and blended families. And I think these quotes today will empower you. And so the first quote is by Mark Twain. He said, the most important days in your life are the days you are born and the day that you find out why. I think this is really empowering because sometimes we are born, but we don't know why. And when you find out why you're born, that becomes one of the most important days. For whatever you do, the why makes a huge difference. The next quote is by a guy by the name of Nicholas Sparks. He said, what it's like to be a parent. It's one of the hardest things you'll ever do, but in exchange, it teaches you the meaning of unconditional love. For those of you who are parents out there, whether you are a godparent, step-parent, whether you're a natural-born parent, it doesn't matter. You realize that it is one of the hardest jobs when you follow someone for their childhood life up until well into their adulthood life, the one thing that it teaches you is unconditional love. The love there is unconditional. They say that even when children become adults, the parent doesn't stop parenting because, or they don't stop loving them because it is truly unconditional love. The next quote is by a guy by the name of Pablo Picasso. He said, everything you can imagine is real. Wow, that's really empowering because anything that you imagine can be real. So that's why it's always good to dream the impossible. Eleanor Roosevelt said, the future belongs to those who believes in the beauty of their dreams. So even if you've come from uncomfortable circumstances or a rough background, still dream because you could use those experiences to find out the whys in life and you want to continue to dream because dreaming makes your world stronger and makes it much better for someone else. Another quote that I would like to reach out is by Mother Teresa. And she said, I have found the paradox that if you love until it hurts, there can be no more hurt, only more love. Wow. There's only two things, love or hurt. And love will overcome hurt. The more you love, the less hurt there will be. And we can take that into our society as well. And the last quote that I want to leave you with is by a guy by the name of Fred Rogers. He said, we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say, I'm not your child, not my community, not my problem. Then there are those who see the need and respond. I consider those people my heroes. I do too. You can say, hey, that's not my problem. I don't want to do it. Where well, you have the resources to help. But those parents, those step parents, those godparents, those foster parents who see that need, we have to commend them because they are the heroes of our society. They take the risk to help shape someone's life for the better. And so we need to, at times, take the time to applaud them and to encourage them. And on low resources, they do it from where it comes from the heart. Even caregivers, they are the unsung heroes in our society. So wherever you go, as Confucius said, go with all of your heart as we celebrate 
these foster parents and step parents and caregivers as well. So I just kind of want to leave that with you this morning. Today, guys, we have a special guest with us. Her name is Deborah Osborne, and she is not only living some of these quotes, she is actually a great model for some of these quotes. Deborah Osborne is a member of Taylor English Litigation and Dispute Resolution Department, where she focuses on advising and defending youth-serving organizations. Ms. Osborne has spent more than 30 years as a social worker, foster parent, criminal, prosecutor, and civil trial attorney. Her experience includes successful cases before the United States Supreme Court and constitutional claims, extensive work in free speech and religious freedom issues, and dozens of successful journey trials. That experience has given her a national presence and organizations that serve young people. Ms. Osborne's background has given her unique insights into defending child care centers, camps, schools, and mentoring organizations. She has volunteered with and defended youth-serving organizations throughout the United States in matters as diverse personal injury cases, intrusive government regulations, libel and slander issues, and claims of sexual abuse. She has conducted numerous investigations of claims of historic child abuse and sexual assault or harassment claims. She also advises youth-serving organizations about child protective policies, staff screening, conduct standards, cyberbullying, and best practices for protecting the children in their care. Prior to joining Taylor English, Ms. Osborne worked with well-respected civil litigation firms defending personal injury claims against youth-serving organizations and medical facilities, as well as defending child care centers and private schools in dispute with state and federal governments. She serves as a federal prosecutor in Western North Carolina, prosecuting cases of sexual assault, child abuse, and drug trafficking. She has worked with nonprofit legal foundations defending free speech, religious liberties, and property rights in various federal courts. What is very unique about Debbie is that she makes her living as a lawyer, but takes care of other people's children. For more than 40 years, she has been working with traumatized children, starting as a preteen, helping her parents with their summer camp and church ministries. In the years since, she has served as a juvenile court probation officer, social worker, group home parent, criminal prosecutor, nonprofit volunteer, and board member and attorney defending young serving organizations. Her most important roles have been foster parent and step parent. She never had biological children, but has managed to collect seven children and 10 grandchildren. Along the way, her foster children, stepchildren, and grandchildren has taught her the life lessons that are the core of her speaking and writing, the lessons she wished she could have learned from a parenting manual rather than trial and error. And so, Gordians, after this short commercial break, we will be back with none other than Deborah Osborne, who will talk to us and share with her her experiences. Are you a full-time caregiver for a loved one with a terminal illness? Do you feel overwhelmed at times? Do you often feel as if there is no hope? Well, with over 12 years of caregiving experience for two parents alone, in addition to writing a dissertation, fulfilling ministerial obligations, working home-based businesses, and radio personality responsibilities, Dr. Odell Glenn has found the time and has had the energy to write a book to inspire and empower other caregivers. Purchase his book entitled, Caregiving, the inspirational manual on his website at www.ogcaregiving.com. And you can also book him to come and speak at your next event, function, or club. Again, the website is www.ogcaregiving.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Orlando Morris McCauley Jr., a candidate for Episcopal service in the AME Church. I'm the father of three young men and one daughter who are millennials, 
Their vision and concept of church is quite different than tradition. One of my visions as candidate for bishop is to find innovative ways for which millennials can exercise their gifts and share their vision, especially through technology. There are a few ways you can help the Macaulay for Bishop campaign by donating monetary gifts. You may do so by visiting our website at www.macaulayforbishop.com and clicking on the donation page on the menu. You may donate using the Cash App or the Givelify options. Your gift can make a huge difference in the life of the church. Find us on Facebook at Macaulay for Bishop 2020. Share our link, promote what we do, or find out how to volunteer. The Lord blessing keep you is my prayer. Does your child have an interest in STEM? Is he or she always asking the why questions? With four engineering degrees behind him, Dr. Glenn can help you better navigate the process. Sign up on his website at www.ogstem.com for newsletters, his upcoming book, and webinars dedicated to STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. The key to success is to plan early. It's never too early to plan. Do you need a certain SAT score to get into the college of your choice? Well, Dr. Odell Glenn can help you get it. The three-tier foundation offers online SAT prep classes. Dr. Glenn will show you test strategies and tactics needed to get the score you want. The exam is beatable with the proper coach. We are open to working with individuals, schools, and groups for six-week online sessions. Sign up at www.3tierfoundation.com forward slash SAT dash preparation. That's www.3tierfoundation.com forward slash SAT dash preparation. Do you have that burning desire to educate, empower, and inspire community? We here at WDRB Media provide you with such wonderful opportunities to make such a positive impact. So step out on faith and make a significant difference with your gift. We care about your voice and the impact it has. Call 1-877-342-7770 and provide them with the code 1349 to begin the process. That's 1-877-342-7770 and code 1349. Well, welcome back, radio audience. This is Dr. Odell Glenn. As mentioned, I read Deborah Orsburn's bio, and she has a plus of, uh, of experience. Deborah, can you greet the audience? Yes, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity, and I'm looking forward to talking to you this morning. Awesome, awesome. And so, Deborah, let's start off with your education. Of course, you are a lawyer. What college did you attend or colleges did you attend? Well, I got my undergraduate degree at Bob Jones University, actually, decades ago, and then worked as a social worker for almost four years. I just burned out. I got tired of dipping out the ocean with a teaspoon and went to University of Georgia for my law school. So I'm a graduate of the University of Georgia. Okay. And Deborah, what did you major in? In undergrad, I was a speech education major. I spent a lot of time in public speaking and debate. That was my thing, arguing with other people and Mm. doing it by the rules or learning the rules by which to argue other people. But my actual major was education. And then I taught for a while, did my student teaching and realized that When it came to working with kids, that my one-on-one skills were much better than my one-on-30 skills. And so I moved into social work, which at that time didn't require a degree. An education degree was fine for me to get the job. It It was a social worker slash probation officer with a juvenile court in Metro Atlanta. Awesome. 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 And so it seems as if your career kind of evolved based on your gift and your talent that you found. Great, great. The way I like to say it is I have career ADD. (laughs) I've never done well with five-year plans. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. We can relate very much similar to what you've gone through. And so, Deborah, what got you into being a forester as well as step-parent? You have seven Worcester kids and 10 stepchildren, as I remember? Uh, No, it's seven children through a combination of foster care and step parents. And then 10 grandchildren. 
the grandchildren, I just sit back and watch and figure out how to spoil them. So (laughs) (laughs) they are a lot less work, but I got into foster care mainly because even though I burned out as a social worker, I didn't lose my passion for working with kids. And I've developed the belief and I still believe it, that there's only so much that systems can do to take care of kids. Mm -hmm. And really only so much that institutions can do. I mean, the institutions are my clients and they do a wonderful job, but the best part of what they do is put caring individuals into the lives of kids. And that's really the only way to change the world or to help kids is one-on-one, one child at a time. Exactly. Exactly. And so As I mentioned earlier today, I gave some quotes to empower our foster parents and foster kids. Can you tell us some of the experiences that you've had that you wish you would have known prior that you now know today? Well, I think the biggest thing that I did not know when I first started was the fact that when kids go through childhood trauma, what we now know to call adverse childhood experiences because of the big Kaiser Permanente study back in the 90s that looked at, at, I believe it was 10 different adverse childhood experiences that they specifically measured. I didn't know when I first started about that research and the fact that, that trauma and adverse childhood experiences change children and they yes. change the child's ability to respond and to deal with stress and to react to things that are around them. And I was still in the old school mode of, well, the kids are just being obstreperous and that's the attitude I need to deal with. And I didn't quite understand that it wasn't so much of a, they won't do things. It's more of a, they can't do things. They can't respond in the way that we want them to. Great, great. That's really empowering. You know, growing up, my parents, they had forced the kids. It was basically six of us, me and my biological brother, and then there were four other kids. They used to call us the Brady Bunch because it was three boys and three girls. And it was just a blessing how my parents, who didn't have a college education, by the way, managed us and took care of us in a house in Brooklyn, New York, which was very unusual. And they got through. And unfortunately, my father passed away in 2018. And the kids came back to show their respect, even as adults. And it was just amazing what that love and support could do when you're in a embracing, loving household and your work speaks for you years later. Wow. And so Deborah, you went and became an attorney, and I'm assuming that you got that after you became a social worker. Yes. How did that change begin? Mm -hmm. Well, when I burned out of being a social worker, I retreated back to my roots as someone who argues a lot, Mm -hmm. just decided that I would go with my skill set of making a living by arguing with people. And so I basically retreated to law school. And stayed very involved with youth organizations. I was a weekend house parent for a group while I worked in law school. And then when I came out, I stayed involved as a volunteer and worked with a couple of nonprofit groups, worked in private practice. And then I started pursuing a job as a criminal prosecutor and found myself prosecuting crimes against children. And In that sense, it was as though all of my experiences just sort of came together and gave me a lot of knowledge in what I was doing as a prosecutor at that point in time. Awesome. Awesome. And so in your bio, you prosecuted and defended lots of different cases, trafficking and abuse and what have you. Can you tell us of some of your experiences or how you got into those areas? Or was it just given to you or you had a specialty in doing certain things? Or Well, it was in, in the office where I was, no one wanted to deal with the sex crimes or the crimes against children. Mm-hmm. And so part of the reason it was assigned to me is because I was the junior person 
Mm-hmm. I was the only woman in the office. But then I also had the background of having been a social worker and right. worked with those cases. And working with kids who are victims of crime it is a specialized skill because you have to have a lot of empathy and a lot of patience to walk kids through recounting what happened to them, particularly since in our jurisdiction and in many other jurisdictions, you have to get them to walk through that and tell their story to a room full of strangers. And so it takes a lot of um, specialized training. And I, because of my experience as a social worker, already had quite a bit of that training under my belt. So again, it was just a natural extension. Um, right and where I had been. Right. And so I was thinking the same thing that with your background in social work and becoming an attorney working with children, that that was a really strong connection. Can you speak to the audience and let them know, say, for instance, there may be someone who wants to combine these two aspirations together. What advice would you give them if they're listening to this radio show as we speak? Well, if they're interested in, in working in social work, the hardest problem for social workers is burnout because mm-hmm. it's hard to do a good job without empathizing with the kids. But at the same time, the problems you see, having that empathy can just leave you vulnerable to just getting burned out. And you just, you do everything you can and kids still make bad decisions. And there's nothing you can do about that. Kids have agency and you have to learn to care about them anyway and let them make those decisions. If they're interested in combining that with law school, you don't have to start life as a social worker. You can do a lot as a volunteer. There's a lot of training available now as volunteer with various organizations. And law school has a lot of clinics that you can work with lower income people and a lot of not exactly handling domestic cases, but helping people who are having domestic problems and the legal issues that stem from that, whether it's dealing with land boards or any number of other kind of civil issues. There's a lot of legal clinics that law schools sponsoring and give their students a lot of experience that can combine all of those passions, uh, volunteer work with the law. Great. That's awesome advice. And I hope that someone out there is listening to that really critical, authentic advice. Now, one of the hard questions that I want to ask you, Deborah, is after doing this as a social worker and as an attorney, you decided to become a foster parent. Most people would not even think about taking children home with them. What was your motivation behind being a foster parent your own self when you are working with kids all day and dealing with the issues that they have. I think that makes you an unsung hero in our community. Well, I appreciate it. It was more of a recognition that there was a problem and that because of my social work background, I had skills that could help that problem. And I just couldn't I couldn't square it with my conscience to not try to help. One of the issues that you run into working with any institution, I was working with the Department of Justice and I love the institution and have nothing but wonderful things to say about it, but it has limited scope and every institution you work with has a limited scope. So law enforcement, for example, that we prosecuted crimes, we didn't do therapy. We didn't work with the kids in any other aspect of their lives. We couldn't put their families back together. There was just a limit to what we could do constructively for them. And that was the same problem I had as a social worker. You know, I had a lot more responsibility and was involved a lot more with kids' lives, but there still was limited work that I could do. So I kept seeing that, well, maybe there was some other way that I could still help. Again, not a lot of kids because no one has those kind of resources, but to help individual kids. And at first, I worked with an agency as an emergency foster parent. And I just took kids anywhere from one night to two weeks while the caseworker was trying to find a good place for them. And the longer the kids could stay with me, 
and somewhere the caseworker knew was safe, the longer time frame the caseworker had to make a good match for a more long-term, more permanent placement. And so that worked well because it was limited commitments. I could work it around my job, which required me to travel quite a bit. And so I could do it when I could be there. And it was a great way to get started. I moved from there into respite care, which was, again, short-term, but it was working with a child as an extended resource for the family. So if the family had to travel, or as I wrote in my book about one child where the placement was falling apart because he just had so many needs that the foster family could not meet, but he came and spent every weekend with me, And that took enough pressure off the family for the caseworker to find a much better, more stable, long-term place for him. So there were several different ways that I provided respite care. So it was one of those situations where I just started waiting in. And then after I did respite care for a while, I moved into long-term placement with Two girls that I've kept in touch with, they did not live with me at the same time and they're not related to each other, but they have become part of the family and they're part of that seven kids and their kids are part of the 10 grandkids that my husband and I share. Awesome. Awesome. I applaud you guys in our community and our society. We don't hear too much about people like you. And if I need to pat myself on the back, me too. Um, who are, who's a caregiver, who I don't have children and you don't have naturally born children of your own, but you do things for others that inquire respite as well as offering your home and your sacrifices inside. And so when I read your bio, you said that your parents did something with respect to caring for others as well as mine. And so we are really leaving the seeds of our parents or our forefathers and our unique, authentic self, which is very, very honorable. And I want to thank you and your husband for taking on those roles of leadership in our society. How important, Deborah, is it for people who have a heart like that to do the work that you do? I think it's critical. We are facing a time now when We need more foster parents than ever before, unfortunately, and there are fewer foster parents than ever before for a lot of reasons. There are some good reasons. The standards have risen and not just anybody can do it. When you and I were children, the standards were much lower, but there are also um, bad reasons for it. People just don't want the hassle. Working with bureaucracies has become more and more difficult and caseworkers I don't know that I've ever had a child who had the same caseworker for the entire time the kids were with me. So there's just a lot of turnover in the profession and it all just wears on foster parents. And it's a big ask. It's a huge load to ask people to take on. I've often said that raising other people's children is the most challenging thing I've ever done in in my life. It is the most rewarding but it is challenging. And there are parts of it that I sometimes ask myself, if I had known then what I know now, I don't know if I would have had the courage to have gotten into all of it (laughs) as much as I did. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, once I was in it, I was in it. So it is a situation where everyone can contribute. And I think I would like to say to people, even if you're not able to be a foster parent, and I hear this a lot, I know it's a big ask. And I have a lot of my friends who are saying, I just can't take on any more kids, but what can I do? And there's a lot that people can do to support the foster parents and the step parents in their communities. It's a very lonely job. We just don't feel like we have enough help, but we're not likely to ask for help. (laughs) So there is that problem of people are willing to help us if we will just ask them about it. Right, right. And so this led you to write your book. You are the author of Raising Other People's Children, What Forster Parenting Taught Me About Drinking Together 
a blended family. Can you talk to the reasoning what started you to write this book? Well, I realized that I was very fortunate. When I fell in love and married my husband, he had five kids. Only two of them were still at home. So five kids sounds like a bigger burden than it actually was for me. Although, as you said in your introduction, even with adult kids, we find ourselves still parenting. So I realized when I went into this that a lot of the mistakes that I was watching my friends make, I had already made those mistakes with my foster kids. So to the extent that you can learn things through knowledge instead of practice, and there's a lot of things I do wrong just because I still haven't learned my lesson and because of my personality, there are certain character traits that I just can't quite be patient enough, for example. But to the extent that you can learn lessons by knowledge, I was able to avoid a lot of those mistakes with my stepkids. For example, I had learned by the time I got married that trauma affects kids and that a lot of the behavior that you see with kids, sometimes it's not an issue of attitude. Their trauma is just causing problems and affecting their ability to deal with it. So I knew that going into being a step parent. And I was watching a lot of my friends who just either they didn't know that or they they weren't relating it to their kids. And so they were just making a lot of the same mistakes that I had already learned from. So that was the reason for writing my book. Like I said, was hoping to help people learn some of the lessons that my kids had taught me over the years of parenting other people's children. So audience, you want to go out and get Deborah's book, Raising Other People's Children, What Forced a Parent Taught Me About Bringing Together a Blended Family. Deborah, how can people go out and purchase your book? What are some of the ways they can either purchase your book or contact you for other engagements that they may have as far as speaking? Well, I think if if they go to raisingotherpeopleschildren.com, That's the website for my book. There are links there to my personal webpage and to all of my social media and all of the different places. You can find me on social media at Debbie Osborne. You just have to know how to spell my last name. It's spelled A-U-S-B as in burn your finger, A-U-S-B-U-R-N. And you can find me under that name on any of the social media, but it may just be that the easiest place for people to find me is raisingotherpeopleschildren.com. Awesome. Awesome. Guys, we're going to take a short commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to talk to Deborah a little bit more about what a blended family is. There's several definitions of that, and we want to know what Deborah's definition of a blended family looks like. Thanks. After we come back from this per commercial break. Do you have that burning desire to educate, empower, and inspire community? We here at WDRB Media provide you with such wonderful opportunities to make such a positive impact. So step out on faith and make a significant difference with your gift. We care about your voice and the impact it has. Call 1-877-342-7770 and provide them with the code 1349 to begin the process. That's 1-877-342-7770 and code 1349. In need of a motivational speaker for your upcoming event, Dr. Glenn speaks at school graduations, public gatherings, colleges, and universities. In addition, he is a national radio personality as well as published author. Have him speak at your next in-person or online event at 3tierfoundation at gmail.com. That's the number 3tierfoundation at gmail.com. Does your child have an interest in STEM? Is he or she always asking the why questions? With four engineering degrees behind him, Dr. Glenn can help you better navigate the process. Sign up on his website at www.ogstem.com for newsletters, his upcoming book, and webinars dedicated to STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. The key to success is to plan early. It's never too early to plan. Well, welcome back, radio audience. We are here with Deborah Osborne, and she has been sharing with us her experiences as a social worker, as a lawyer, and as a forced parent. And she has written a book 
entitled Raising Other People's Children, What Force of Parenting Taught Me About Bringing Together a Blended Family. And so, Debbie, in the title of your book, you emphasize blended family. What is a blended family? I mean, when we look at the vice president, she is part of a blended family and she shared some of her experiences. And so in America, we are seeing this quote unquote blended family more and more so than we've ever seen it before. What is your definition of a blended family? A blended family is whenever you have parents who are not biologically related to the children. It can be step families. Actually, I should say who are not the biological parents because you have a lot of grandparents raising kids. They're biologically connected. They're just not the parents. So I would include kinship care in that for mm-hmm. adults who are not the biological parents are parenting kids. Awesome. Awesome. Would that also include different races? Because I know the vice president, her husband is Jewish, but then he has kids that from another marriage. And then it's all these different races. I think you have Indian, African-American, Caucasian, Jewish, all of them connected as a family. And they are what we call this blended family. So do you also look at blended families as a part of different cultures all coming together? Yes, you see that quite a bit. I've parented minority kids. We don't think about it that much. So Mm -hmm. Now that you're asking me, I have to think through it. And and certainly the different cultures and different life experiences all come together in different ways. And we learn a lot from each other and a lot from each other's different experiences. In that sense, you do have a lot of blending of the families. I think if you have two people from different cultures who marry each other and raise their kids, I have a lot of friends who've done that. I don't think sociologists exactly call those blended families because you've got the biological parents staying married and raising their biological kids. But the cultures and the experiences of the family certainly do blend together to create some really cool and wonderful family experiences and lives and family traditions that they can pass on to the kids. Awesome. Yes, I think that it does. And it also creates conversations and communities that would nevertheless not be talked about. And so, Deborah, can you give us some experiences? And I'm sure you mentioned them in your book on some experiences or some lessons that taught you that you would like to share from the audience or any excerpts from your book that really stand out. Well, there's a lot of different things that my kids have taught me. And I think one of the stories that I always tell was probably the foundational lesson of learning how to parent these kids is the experience I had not long after we were married. My husband's wife had asked for custody of the youngest son, or actually the youngest two sons, because they were the only two who were still minors. And so we were talking to our youngest son my stepson, trying to figure out his opinion about it. And he, of course, wasn't going to, he wasn't going to say anything that sounded like he was taking sides. So my husband finally said, well, let me ask it this way. If you had a magic wand, what would your life look like going forward? And my stepson, he didn't hesitate at all. He just said, well, if I had a magic wand, you and mom would still be back together. And then there was this pause and he looked at me very concerned and said, no insult, Debbie you and the dogs would be right next door. Oh, wow. (laughs) So, uh, you know, by then, I know a lot of my friends who were step-parents who would have gotten their feelings hurt. But fortunately, I had been through those discussions with my foster kids, and I knew it wasn't about me. This child and I had a wonderful relationship, and I understood that with stepkids and foster kids, we are not the people who are supposed to be in their lives. If the world worked the way it should, none of my kids would know me. And so in that sense, I'm always their plan B parent. And that's fine. You know, it has to be okay. We can never completely replace their parents. And that's okay. We can still have a pretty wonderful relationship, even as their plan B. Wow. That's really, really interesting that you become their plan B 
which is okay, and that you're okay with that. Now, there are some children whose parents or natural born parents have passed away at really, really early ages. And so would you say that then the step parents become the plan A? Well, I don't. There are a lot of studies about kids, certainly if the kids are old enough to remember their biological parents, they have to go through that grieving process just as if there's divorce and the parent is is still around. There are a lot of studies showing that even children who don't have any memory of their biological parents still have a sense that things aren't right. You know, now most parents will tell the kids they're adopted and be very honest and upfront about it. And it's seems to be on a primal level that neither we nor the kids can quite deal with logically. It's at a level that logic just doesn't reach. So we all still have to deal with it. And I don't know that we can ever become plan A because a child's always going to wish that their parent had never died. Right, right. But again, we don't have to be a plan A in order to have a wonderful relationship with those kids. And right. so what we have to learn is to help them through that and to make it not really relevant to our relationship with them. You know, our relationship, our commitment to them has to be one way because, well, first, we're the adults. Right. Secondly, kids are just not able to reciprocate in those kinds of relationships. As parents, we are always making an unlimited one-way commitment to kids and caring about them and letting them have the freedom to do what it is they decide to do and caring about them and loving them anyway. Right. Very, very interesting. And so, Deborah, with all those experiences being a step-parent and a forced parent, you now have a blog about parenting issues at www.otherpeopleschildren.org and about legal issues at www at youthservicesLaw.com. And so what advice have you been giving people through your blogs? Well, I deal with a lot of issues. Like, for example, right now with school starting, I talk about how children who suffer trauma don't do well in school. And school is not a place that, on average, many of them excel at. And we have to understand that it's not a happy place for them. And we have to spend a lot of time educating the school and saying, we're not trying to get our kids out of doing homework or out of doing what they need to do. We're not giving you excuses. What we're trying to explain to you is that trauma disrupts the child's learning process. And it's not a matter of won't, it's a matter of can't. And I liken it to a computer program that is working in the background, diverting all of a kid's resources. The computer program is dealing with trauma. And up front, we're asking them to learn multiplication tables. So just like when a computer is crunching a lot of data or doing something in the background, the program that we see at the front is slow and glitchy and incredibly annoying. (laughs) So we just have to understand that kids can only do what they can do. On the other hand, I also spend a lot of time explaining that our kids are much, much more than the sum of their trauma. And we have to help them deal with it and move past it. We have to keep them from thinking of themselves as victims. And that is incredibly hard in this society where victimhood has currency. And so our instinct is when something has currency, we want to more of it. Whatever the currency is, we want to amass it and hoard it. And so it's very easy for our kids. One of my kids called it counting up victim points because I was talking to her about going to college or getting her grades up. And she said, I don't need to do that. I've got enough victim points to get into college without good grades. So I'm I'm Mm. sorry, what? And she said, well, you know, my dad deserted us. My mom became a drug addict. I end up in foster care. Now I'm living with you old people who just don't understand me. I can write a killer essay to get into college. (laughs) (laughs) I was kind of taken aback to hear it laid out quite, (laughs) quite that clearly. (laughs) But but it is a trap that our kids can fall into. And it's hard to find that balance. It's hard to walk that line of understanding what they've been through, but not letting them become permanent victims. 
Right, right, right. And I think even now, since COVID happened, that's another set of trauma on kids and especially foster kids. Some of them who unfortunately may be abused in homes and you have to quarantine. That's a whole nother area. And then also there are foster children who have aged out of the system. So, you know, they haven't been adopted and they're older now. That's all those different traumatic experiences. It's what makes up a child going through that. Is there any sources or resources or research that is being done on those hidden traumas and even in a larger part of society that we need to be aware of? Or are there any nonprofits that you can direct people to that could help soothe some of those traumatic experiences? Well, there are a lot of groups different groups right now that are working with trauma-informed care, the National Foster Parent Association. Actually, it's a good resource for non-foster parents because of their work on trauma and working with that. There's a trauma-informed education. I can't remember what group it is that is working on that, but you can just Google trauma-informed education Mm -hmm. and see a lot of the work that is being done now. We are just now beginning to start to quantify the problems that the lockdown has caused for our kids. Don't get me started on the trade-offs that we've made with the lockdown. (laughs) It has been horrible for our kids. I I can imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe experts know a lot, but they have a very narrow field. So I think that mental health experts understood the risks of the lockdown and no one quite listened to them. And now our kids are suffering from a lot of the mental health problems caused by lack of contact. You know, there's a reason that solitary confinement is against the Geneva Convention. So I think we're going to have a lot more of these kinds of issues to deal with our kids um, right. and get past a lot of these depression, anxiety, and other trauma issues. Right. Right, right. So this is a continuum problem. And yes, you know, we need people like yourself to come in and step in to become a force to parent or to help alleviate the problem by giving of their time and their resources. We don't have a lot of time here, Deborah, but we're having an awesome conversation. But if there's someone in the radio audience who is considering being a forced parent, haven't made the decision yet, what advice or resources would you tell them to actually begin the process? I would tell them to start talking to existing foster parents and see what resources they need to help. They can become part of an existing family's extended social safety net. For example, there are some groups out there also that will let you sign up as, they have different names for it, but sort of as an intern and walk along beside foster families to see what they need and, again, become part of their safety net to provide help and support. And you can get licensed as a respite care to take kids for a weekend. There's a lot of different ways to dip your toe into the water and find out what's going on without having to jump into the deep end of the pool. So check with churches. There's a really wonderful group called James 127 that does a lot of training for foster parents. It comes from the admonition in the Bible to care for the widows and orphans. And I'm actually a member of that group on Facebook. It's a wonderful group. There's a lot of knowledge there. So just a lot of different ways that people can get information before they take on the responsibility. That's really interesting that you mentioned that because the Bible says in James 1.27, and I'm pulling that up as we speak just to get the quote correct, and it mentions pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted for the world. And so I think that verse is very fitting to our discussion because that is the definition of pure religion is to visit those who are most vulnerable, to help those who are most vulnerable when you have the power to be able to do something about it. And so that spreads into step parents, foster parents, caregivers, 
and just being there to be that support of which we are so much needed in our society. And so, Deborah, this is all the time that we have today. You have been an inspiration and an encouragement and empowerment to someone out there who is considering force a parent or who is a force a parent as we speak and or step parent and has illuminated their understanding. Are there any final words that you would like to give to the audience? Well, I would just say that when we talk about foster parenting and step parenting, I know that it can be very intimidating. As I've said, it's the most challenging thing I've ever done, but it also is the most rewarding thing that I have ever done. And I would say that I'm not the classic person that people think of when they think of being a nurturing foster parent or step parent, because I'm very left brain. I am not particularly patient. One of my granddaughters made the comment one time, she said, all of my friends have sweet, kind, cookie-baking grandmas. I have the scary lawyer grandma. (laughs) (laughs) So I would just tell your audience that if an empathy-challenged, impatient, left-brain person like me can establish a strong relationship with traumatized kids, then anyone can do it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Before we leave, I want to end off with a prayer to all of our step parents, foster parents, foster children, traumatized children in our society. God, we thank you for this opportunity to pour into those who are more vulnerable than of those who are in our society. And we thank you for Deborah and her husband's gift to be able to accept kids and to love them unconditionally. Now, God, we ask that you would touch every person that has been listening to this show, that you would go into their homes, go into their circumstances and heal them, God. We know that healing is a process in certain instances, but we trust you to continue the healing work. God, those forced kids and those forced parents who are traumatized, God, we ask for your continued healing and continue to give them the resources that they would need to further their healing, God. We thank and praise you for angels and for people who come to the rescue of these children. And God, we ask that your blessings bestow upon each family under the sound of my voice. We thank you in advance for great futures and great outcomes that will come from loving from both the parent and the child. We thank you. Amen. Amen. Well, audience, this is all the time we have on the OG Inspiration Show. We hope that you have been enlightened and empowered. And until next week, this is Dr. Odell Glenn signing off. Have an awesome week.